Let's open them up again to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. So we are continuing to work our way through this letter. And in these days, we're in the second part of chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Verses 12 through 21. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first three verses. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 15, 16, and 17. Uh, These are important verses, and uh, they have much to say. But just to remind you of the the big context, I want to read verses 12 through 21. So uh, Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, here's what we read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We who are Christians call ourselves disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean to be a disciple? Well, among any other thing that it might mean, certainly a disciple is one who learns from a master. To become someone's disciple means that you are willing to place yourself under them to learn from them, to soak in their teachings, to strive to understand the Master's words. Being a disciple of Jesus means using your mind. It means taking time to study and understand the teaching of the Master. As we continue in our study of Romans, I want us to be warned up front that from here in chapter 5, really through the end of chapter 7, Paul is going to be teaching us some things that require careful thought. 
These are not the kind of verses that you just read one time and always immediately you understand it. You immediately get the point. Some of these verses require study. Do you understand the words that Paul is using? Do you understand the way he's using those words? You have to think about context. You have to remember what has already been taught in the letter. Paul is not giving us milk in these passages. Paul is giving us steak. And he's assuming that we've learned the abilities to use the fork and the knife to get into the steak and to bring it to our mouths and to eat it. And if we do, we will find that it tastes very good. Friends, we don't want to make excuses here. Don't fall into the trap of reading these verses one time and saying, I don't get it, and moving on. Um, Jonathan Edwards, widely considered to be one of the most brilliant theologians who ever lived. How did Jonathan Edwards gain such a deep understanding of the Scriptures? Well, when Jonathan Edwards was a young man, he made a resolution that whenever he encountered something in the Bible he didn't understand, he would not let it go until he had gotten to the bottom of it. Whenever it was, whatever it was, whether it was a verse, whether it was a doctrine, he he refused to put it aside. He refused to skip over it. He, He resolved that when he came to something he didn't understand, he would not let it go until he had gotten to the bottom of it. I would suggest that is the kind of attitude we ought to have with this teaching from our Savior. And so as we proceed in the book of Romans, we need to proceed with prayer that the Holy Spirit would give us illumination to understand these things. But we also need to, depending on Christ, be willing to do the hard work of studying, of rolling these things over and over and over again in our minds until they become clear and until they become sweet to our souls. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have been learning about the principle of federal headship. Everybody say federal headship. This is the idea that Adam represented all humanity in the garden. When he sinned, when he fell, the punishment of death that came upon Adam came upon the human race because in Adam's fall, we sinned all. He was our federal head. And just as God is just, to, and, I'm sorry, and God is just to hold us accountable for what our representative did in the garden. And the point that Paul is taking us to is that Jesus is the federal head of His church. That Jesus represented His people, the new humanity, who will populate a new heavens and a new earth. In His life and death, He was living and dying as their head, as their representative. He was perfectly righteous, and His righteousness is now counted to us. The rewards and the blessings that God gives to perfect obedience are now ours because our head was faithful to the point of death. In other words, being connected to Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. Union with Christ means salvation. 
It is union with Christ that brings peace and joy forever. This is the idea of federal headship. And the question is, is Christ your federal head? Was He representing you in His life and death? And the way we have that union with Christ is by faith. Now, I want to take on the most common objection that people have to this teaching. Namely, it isn't fair. How is it that God could allow one man, Adam, to sin and by his one sin curse the entire human race? Why didn't we get a vote in the matter? We had no opportunity to elect Adam as our representative. God appointed Adam to be the head of humanity, and now God holds you and me responsible for what Adam did. This doesn't sound good. This doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound fair. That's the objection. And I would answer it in two ways. Number one, everything God does is good and right. Everything God does is good and right. Right. So if something that God did seems unjust or unrighteous in my sight, the problem is not with God. The problem is with me. The problem is with my understanding. We must humble ourselves. We must remember the limits of our itty-bitty brains. Isaiah 55, verse 9 As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Let us learn the lesson of the book of Job. Don't accuse God of doing wrong. Don't accuse God of treating you unfairly. Learn what Job learned the hard way. Put your hand over your mouth. And remember, He is God. You are not. He knows what He's doing. And He's good and right in all that He does. A second way to answer that objection would simply be to consider other ways that God might have chosen to deal with man. For example, God could have chosen to create man already confirmed in holiness. That is, God could have chosen to create mankind in such a state that there was never a possibility of sinning. There was never a possibility of falling. This is how God created some of the angels. Right? The Bible speaks of elect angels who have been confirmed in holiness. They will never fall away. They will never sin against God. They cannot sin against God. God has made them that way. God could have created man that way. But if God had created man, confirmed in holiness, without the possibility of sinning, we would have never known such concepts as grace, forgiveness, or even justice. Would we know what goodness was if we did not know what evil was? The fact is, there are glorious attributes of God that would have never been displayed that would have never been seen and known and praised had God not created man with the ability to sin and fall away. 
One day, when Jesus returns and brings His people into the new heavens and the new earth, and that's what we're waiting for, on that day, we will be glorified, which is just another way of saying we will be confirmed in a holiness. When we get to heaven, there will no longer even be the possibility of you sinning. But that's not how He created us from the beginning. Because otherwise we would have never known what true grace is. God could have created us the way that Pelagius taught. He could have created us so that there is no federal headship. Each of us is born completely innocent. God could have chosen to create you and me with the ability to sin or the ability not to sin and left us on our own to see what we would do. That's what many want, right? Many say, I don't want Adam to be my representative in the garden. I want God to let me be just born innocent with the possibility of sinning or the possibility of not sinning and let me live how I want to live and then judge me according to what I do. Well, on that occasion, I'm sorry, what, what do you think would happen if God did that? Well, first of all, he did do that once with Adam, right? Adam was created with the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. It was up to Adam what he would do. And to help Adam be satisfied, to help Adam not sin, God gave him incredible blessings. His own presence, a wife to love him and help him, the beauty of the garden, right? God surrounded Adam with blessing after blessing, the, the blessing of work, the blessing of, of, of having a, a purpose and fulfillment in life. Adam was in paradise. Even in that situation, Adam chose to sin. Now, what do you think would happen to us if we had been born like Adam? Able to sin, but also able not to sin. Do you think we would have made it long without sinning? Yes, we would not have had our flesh pulling us towards sin, but there still would have been the devil, and there still would have been the world, because assuming other people had chosen to sin before us, the effects of their sins would still be at work in this world. And folks, our flesh is a powerful enemy, but so is the devil, and so is the world. I would suggest we would not have made it very long. And even if God had created all people innocent, Able to sin, able not to sin. And even if somehow there were some people, one, two, maybe a million, who made it through life without sinning, what about the rest? What about those that sinned? Would they have any hope of salvation? Would they have any hope of mercy? You see, that view of salvation in that way that God could have related to man, there would have been no gospel, no Jesus, no salvation. Everyone judged strictly on the accounting of what he or she did, period. In other words, church, by creating a world in which federal headship exists, God created a world in which salvation can exist. Yes, Every man must stand before God and give an account for his own sins. Every person must be responsible for their works. But because of federal headship, there is a way of salvation. I can stand before God and declare that though I was born a son of Adam, 
though I was born guilty before God, and though I have sinned a gazillion times in my own life, I am now united to Jesus Christ in faith. Jesus is my new federal head, and therefore His life and His death and His resurrection have removed my guilt and have made me righteous. And so the point is this. Federal headship, this principle of one man representing many, is good and wise and just because it is through federal headship that grace and mercy and forgiveness can exist. Church, God does not owe us anything. He is the potter. We are the clay. He can do whatever He wants with us and be just. So the fact that God has caused our world to work in this way is a remarkable expression of His wisdom in accomplishing His purpose of showing off His grace and His mercy for His own glory. Friends, our God is infinitely wise and He knows what He is doing. As strange as it may seem to us, this world works exactly the way God wants it to work and He does all things well. If you reject federal headship, because you think it isn't fair that Adam represented you in the garden, then you must also admit that it was not fair for Christ to represent you on the cross. In other words, if you lose Romans 5, 12-21, you lose the Gospel. You lose salvation. You lose much of the glory of God. That's how important this principle is. And that's why it's worthy of us engaging our minds to make sure we see that it is true, that it is taught, and that it is worthy of us praising God for His amazing wisdom. Are you with me? All right. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. As we come to these verses, Paul is basically running with the statement that he just made at the end of verse 14, right? He just said at the end of verse 14 that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. Remember that word type, right? There are types and there are antitypes. Types are copies, shadows. And the antitype is the original. Jesus is the original. Adam is the copy, the shadow that was pointing to Jesus. And we've already seen how Adam was pointing to Jesus. Adam represented many in his actions, pointing to the day when Jesus would come and represent all his people in his life and death and resurrection. That's the connection. But in verses 15 through 17, Paul puts Adam and Jesus side by side, not to show us the similarities but to show us the differences. Adam was a type of Christ, but in light of that, there are some differences that really shine through. There are some ways in which Jesus is far more glorious and far superior to that first man, Adam. Adam, first of the old creation. Jesus, first of the new creation. 
but they're not the same. One is far better than the other. Verses 15 through 17 are all about showing us why Jesus is far better than Adam. I'm going to use a version of a Piper illustration here. Suppose I have a dog. And maybe I don't know a lot about dogs. In fact, let's assume that before I received this dog, I've never seen one before in my life. I now have one, but I know nothing about them. This is the first one I've ever laid eyes on. What is unique about my dog? What makes my breed of dog different from others? Well, I don't know, because this is the only dog I've ever seen in my life, right? Maybe, maybe it's a Newfoundland, right? I might well assume that all dogs are just like mine, standing two and a half to three feet tall. I might assume that every dog in the world is dark black because my dog is dark black. I might assume that every dog in the world has very long hair and droopy ears and great strength like my Newfoundland, right? But then, suppose I go to the Bendrams' house and I see their little dog, Kenya. Their dog is a boxer lab mix. It is much smaller than my dog. It is not all black. It has brown and white in its skin. Kenya's hair is so much smaller than my dog's. One of Kenya's ears flops over like my dog, but the other one stands straight up. You see, by putting these two animals side by side, I can see not only the ways that they're the same as dogs, but by putting them side by side, I can see what makes each one of them unique and makes them different. In verses 15 through 17, Paul has said Adam and Jesus are the same in this big way. They were both federal heads. They both represented people in their lives. But now I'm going to put them side by side and let you see how Jesus and Adam are different as federal heads. How Jesus is far superior. So, verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the free gift of righteousness that Jesus brings to us is not like the trespass of Adam that brought us death. Why? He says, the grace of God given through Jesus has abounded for many. There's two things to note here. First, note that there are two different aspects of God at work, right? The death that comes to us through Adam is an expression of God's justice. Adam entered into a legal covenant with God on behalf of humanity. Adam, humanity, broke that covenant. That covenant, The curse of death fell on all humanity. This is God's justice at work in Adam. God's justice at work in the death that has come on you and me through Adam. God's justice, the righteousness that comes to us through Jesus, however... 
that free gift of righteousness that we don't have, but we need it. And Jesus accomplished it for us. And it's given to us by faith. That free gift of righteousness is not an expression of God's justice. We are not owed salvation. This is an expression of God's grace. The gift of righteousness is just that. It's a gift. Paul emphasizes the graciousness three times in verse 15. He speaks of the grace of God. You see it? Verse 15, see it? The grace of God. Then again, the free gift. And then again, the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to see that what God has done for us in Jesus is all of grace. Human death is a matter of God's justice. Human salvation is a matter of God's grace. The second thing to note in verse 15 is that this gracious gift of righteousness surpasses the legal consequence of death. The gracious gift of righteousness that comes to us in Jesus surpasses, is better than, is greater than, goes further than the legal consequence of death. In what way? Two ways that I'm going to mention. See if you can follow me. Brains on. Paying attention. Here we go. Number one, the gift of righteousness that we have in Jesus goes further than the consequence of death. Okay? The gift of righteousness that we have in Jesus goes further than the consequence of death. Let me illustrate using everybody's favorite subject, math. I am not a math guy, but maybe this will help you understand what Paul was saying in verse 15. So I want you to imagine this stage is a number line. All right? I am standing in a number line, and I am at zero, okay? And everything that way is negative numbers. So negative one, number negative two, negative three. And let's say just over here, this is the end. This is negative ten, all right? Over here is zero. This is where I am. Everything on this side is positive numbers. Positive one, positive two, positive three, all the way to here. This is positive ten, all right? Think about it this way. Um, when God created Adam, Adam was at zero. He was neutral. Adam had the ability to do righteousness, positive. Adam had the ability to sin, to go negative. All right? Now, we don't know how long Adam lived before he fell. We don't know how long Adam obeyed God before he sinned. But let's say that Adam did live for a while, okay? And that he did some good things. He worked the garden. He loved his wife. He rejoiced in God. And so Adam was accomplishing good things. And maybe he came this far on the path of righteousness. But then he sinned. And he sinned against a holy God. He broke the explicit commands of the covenant. And he became a sinner. How unrighteous did Adam become? Did he become negative one or negative two? How far, did, how far in unrighteousness did all humanity go? We became utterly unrighteous. We became utterly lost, utterly evil, right? That is, 
Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change its spots? Then can you, who are accustomed to do evil, do good. Right? That's the kind of wicked we became. No one does good. No, not one. So Adam brought, us, brought humanity from zero where we started out. Adam brought humanity all the way to here. So here comes Jesus. What does Jesus give us in salvation? If Jesus simply makes up what Adam lost, we go back to here. But is that what we have in Jesus Christ? Does Adam simply take us from there to or Does Jesus take us simply from there to there? He does not. He takes us from utter inability to do good to absolutely counted righteous in the sight of God. Do you see how the work of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, brings us further, goes further than the death of, that we got in Adam? Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see that? So he's saying, what Jesus did is greater. It's bigger. It goes further. It doesn't just make up what Adam did. It goes beyond. I'll take that as an amen. All right. The second way... The second way is, um, let me find where I am in my notes now. Okay, the second way in which Jesus' gift of righteousness is greater and surpasses the death that we had in Adam is this. It is more certain than Adam's consequence of death. Why do I say that? The death that we got from Adam was not unchangeable. And how do we know that it wasn't unchangeable? Because Jesus has changed it. <laughs> right? We were made dead in sin by Adam. We were given this curse of spiritual death and physical death in Adam, but it was not permanent because Jesus Christ has made us spiritually alive. Jesus Christ is going to make us physically alive after resurrection. And let me ask you this, is that going to be permanent? Yes, it is. The righteousness that we have in Jesus, the life that that righteousness brings us, those are permanent. They will never be lost. You will not be singing for 10,000 times 10,000 all of these thousands of years. You're not going to be singing to Jesus, praising Him, living in the glories of heaven, worrying, I hope I don't sin and lose all this again. I hope I don't mess up and all of a sudden I have to do all... No, no, no. What Adam did was not permanent. What Jesus has done is permanent. And so it is superior. All right, nod your head if you're with me. I know this is not the easiest, but okay, good. Verse 16, look at verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So he's making two contrasts here. The first contrast is, the, is between the result of Adam's sin and the result of Jesus' perfect work. Adam's sin, judgment. Jesus' work, justification. Right? right? Adam brought his people, death. Jesus brings his people, life. That's the first contrast. But the other contrast and this is what Paul's really emphasizing in verse 16, is the number of sins involved. Okay? The number of sins involved. Listen to a couple of commentators on this point. 
Douglas Moo says this, Not only are the results of the actions of Adam and Christ diametrically opposed. Adam brings death, Jesus brings life. Diametrically opposed. But the graciousness of God's work in Christ becomes all the more evident when one considers the number of sins taken into consideration in each respective action. One sin of Adam brought judgment. Jesus does not cover just one sin. Right? One sin worthy of infinite torment in hell. Jesus' righteousness does not cover just one sin. It covers all our sins. Cranfield, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. That is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift. This is the miracle of miracles utterly beyond all human comprehension. In other words, it was one thing for God to meet Adam's one sin with judgment. It is something utterly different and utterly amazing that God would meet the incredible number and the incredible variety of sins of such a massive amount of people over so many centuries. A very Mount Everest of sin lifted up before His sight. Every little sin, despicable, abhorrent to Him, causing His holiness to want to lurch out in wrath upon that sin. A Mount Everest of this sin. God covers it all with the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, I know these verses are hard. The crazy thing is these verses are meant to cause us to worship. These verses are all about the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. And Paul's not done. Verse 17. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Hear the contrast, right? Adam and Jesus side by side, contrasting them, showing what's different. Here the contrast has to do with reigning. Adam, Adam's sin as head of the human race brought us into slavery. Death reigns over the human race. Spiritual death reigns over the human race. Physical death reigns over the human race. Do we yet know of any human being who has not died? Fountain of youth, right? Didn't they find it down in Florida? Right? Didn't they, didn't they find it? Death still reigns. Best technology the world has ever known. And we don't get beyond, at the most, what, 105? Something like that's the record. 107? We don't live. Death reigns because of Adam. But Jesus, as head of His people, has brought a change in kings. Death no longer reigns over those who belong to Jesus. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus makes His people spiritually alive, removes the reign of death 
over their lives. Jesus raises His people from the dead on the last day. New glorified bodies raised up to join with our glorified souls. Both spiritually and physically, Christ's people will live forever. The death that came to us through Adam has been conquered. Its dominion has been broken. There was the reign of death. Now there's the reign of life for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And yet, that's not exactly what Paul says. He he surprises us in the verse. He doesn't just say, Christ's gift of righteousness topples the reign of death. He adds that Jesus' gift of righteousness makes us to reign in life. That is, forever and ever and ever, Christ's people will no longer be ruled by death. Instead, filled with the life given to us by Jesus, we will reign. Adam was told to have dominion over the earth. That God-given role of dominion was damaged when we became slaves to sin, slaves to death. But now through Jesus Christ, we will return to our rightful role. We will reign over the new heavens. We will reign over the new earth. We will do so as kings of God. We will do so as queens of God, conformed to the image of Christ. And we will no longer be in bondage to slave or to sin. We will have only one who is over us, and that will be our God in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let me summarize what we've seen this morning. Just like putting my Newfoundland next to the Bindrum's dog, Kenya, we've taken the two federal heads, Adam and Christ, put them side by side and said, what makes them different? Christ is far more glorious than Adam. Let us count the ways. Number one, Christ is more glorious than Adam, for whereas Adam brought us the curse of death, Jesus brought us the gift of righteousness and salvation. Number two, Christ is more glorious than Adam for Christ's work has surpassed Adam's work by going further for our good than Adam's work did for our harm. Number three, Christ is more glorious than Adam for Adam's work on our behalf was changeable, but Christ's work on our behalf is unchangeable and permanent. Number four, Christ is more glorious than Adam For whereas Adam's work included God's judgment for one sin, Christ's work has God mercifully overcoming gazillions of sins by the blood of Jesus. And number five, Christ is more glorious than Adam, for He has not only destroyed the dominion of death that Adam brought us, but He has ensured that we will reign in life for all eternity. It's good news. It's very good news if we are part of the we. The we. He has ensured that we shall reign. Are you a part of the we? Are you one who belongs to Jesus Christ? It would be a terrible tragedy, and it is a terrible tragedy that Christ accomplished so much. But there are many who hear about all that Christ accomplished, and it wasn't for them because they will not believe. Adam represented all humanity. Who did Jesus represent? Look at verse 17 again. See those words. Those who receive. 
Paul says explicitly in verse 7, it is those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness that get these glorious blessings. Dear friends, have you received Christ's gift? All that God requires of you to enter into salvation, to enter into the greatest blessings in the world is that you unclench your fist and hold out your hands. Come to Christ hungry. Come to Christ thirsty. Come to Christ poor. Come to Christ naked. Let Him feed you. Let Him clothe you with the perfect righteousness that He's accomplished. You come to Him with your report card full of F's. Place your trust in Him and believe according to the guarantee of God's Word that your F's have been removed, His A's have been replaced, and you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means for all of these glorious blessings to be yours. That's what it means to have Jesus as your federal head. And so I simply ask, will you not run to Christ in faith? Will you not trust Him? Will you not rest in Him alone? I pray you will. Let's pray.